0: This morning, we're continuing our gospel culture series. We're taking a look at another trait of a biblical church. For the last two months, we've been focusing our attention on what it means to be a biblical church, a a, a church that is both faithful and fruitful. In other words, a church with a gospel culture. The reason we are taking time over these few months to focus on these traits is that in in the society and and the culture that we live in, We need to be reminded and encouraged to live out the call that God has given to us as his church. A call to be grounded in the scriptures as our ultimate authority and centered on the gospel of Jesus and everything we do. A call to be not only a testimony of God's grace, but a path for his grace for all people. This is why we've looked at all the traits that we've looked at, like like worship or the pursuit of the common good or prayer, all of these, all of the traits that we're talking about in this series are, are not just uh, good things we should do or, or remember as a church, but essential characteristics of a church that wants to be faithful to the God who made us in the first place and to produce the good fruit that he's called us to produce. A church that wants to be true to who the Bible says we are. And so this morning, we're examining the Bible to look at another defining characteristic of a biblical church, the discipline of generosity. Now, Ecclesiastes 5.10 confronts us with the reality of our own hearts when it tells us this, whoever loves money never has enough. The, The same can be said of many things, of all the things that we possess, because our stuff can just as easily possess us. The problem of our human heart is not that we don't have, but that we will never have enough, that we will always want more. Legend has it that one of the richest Americans who ever lived, John D. Rockefeller, was once asked, how much is enough? His response, a little bit more. Whether Mr. Rockefeller actually said this is besides the point because his life and the life of so many live out this very answer. This this answer is closer to our hearts than we realize. How much is enough? The answer is it's never enough. Not for hearts that might be plagued by the love of money. You see, one of the scariest things about money is that most of us will never make enough to realize that it doesn't really satisfy. You see, without realizing it, money has this ability to to evolve, to, to deform, and to eventually transform into a god A God that will ruthlessly try to master our hearts. And for some of us, a God that might already have a stranglehold in our lives. Whether gripping our hearts by greed, trying to make more as fast as we can, or even by anxiety, always worried if we will ever have enough. This God is subtle. What Jerry Bridges might call a a respectable sin. You see, because most of us don't see it as a problem. Most of us just see it as a normal way of life. But Jesus knows what's in our hearts, and he knows exactly what he needs to save us from, which is why God's people have always, from the very beginning, been defined by generosity. Because generosity is the only way to loosen the grip that money might have on our hearts. The only way to to demote money from the God that we serve to an instrument we use to serve the one true God is through generosity. But this isn't a sermon just about money. You see, I'm starting here because money tends to be the clearest way to point out this particular problem and to see generosity as the solution that God gives us. But money is only one of the areas where God's people are called to be generous because money is only one of the ways that our sinful hearts demonstrate our greed. The discipline of generosity does not start and end with how we handle our money. The discipline of generosity is not just a charitable contribution statement at the end of the year. It is so much more than that because generosity amongst the people of God is a way of life, a a countercultural way of life that God invites us into, not just to save us from our hearts that are choking on our idols, but to testify to a kingdom where there is always more than enough and everyone is always taken care of. Let me show you what I mean by taking you to our text this morning. We're going to be in Acts 4, 32 through Acts 5, verse 2. If you want to open there in your Bibles, if you have your Bibles, I'll ask you to turn there. If you don't have one, there's a bunch in the cart in the back. And if you really want to, you can follow on the screens behind me. And if you're able, I'll ask you to stand as we read God's Word from Acts 4 and 5. If you want to stand with us. Familia, listen to God's Word for us this morning, starting at verse 32. All the believers And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. This is God's word, you may be seated. Before we go any further, i want to give you my sermon in one sentence. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm a little worried doing this because I'm worried to be like, okay, I got what I needed, and I'm not going to listen to anything else. So that's not what this means. I want you to use this sentence to track with me throughout the rest of the sermon. All right? So here's what I'm arguing for from our text this morning. Generosity in the life of the church is the overflow of hearts that have been changed by the gospel. Not just financial generosity. But but in all of life, generosity, a uh, uh, generosity that gets into every corner of our lives and affects every relationship because we have been brought back into relationship with our creator, our king, our savior, Jesus Christ. Generosity marks the church because generosity is at the core of the gospel that makes the church. And in order to see that this morning, I want to draw out four aspects of generosity from this text. I want us to see the beauty of generosity. The dark side of generosity, the gospel of generosity, and the discipline of generosity. These four aspects of generosity will function as our hand holds this morning as we dive into this text and we explore how God makes us not just into his people, but into his generous people. The beauty, the dark side, the gospel, and the discipline of generosity. So let's start at the beginning, the beauty of generosity. Look at verse 32, Acts 4, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. This is how Luke describes the beginning of God's people in the book of Acts. Not just here, but even in Acts 2, a, a few chapters before this. You see, as the author of Acts, Luke, is, is documenting God's movements in, 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 in saving people and making a people for himself. And one of the things that, that Luke emphasizes by the power of the Holy Spirit in, in these initial descriptions of God's work in Acts 2 and 4 is that God's people are generous. In Acts 2, Luke explains it like this, which sounds pretty similar to our passage here. 2.44 says it like this. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. The context of both of these passages explains why, why this is happening. Right? It's not just that God's people you know, suddenly became nicer or you know, learned the kindergarten rule of sharing. It's because this was a movement of God you see, both of these descriptions actually come right after Luke records that the Spirit of God came upon all who had gathered. Both times. And here's the point. One of the effects of the Holy Spirit's work among God's people is a radical, Spirit-filled generosity that got into every aspect of life. And it was beautiful. So beautiful That anyone who had need was taken care of by other people in the group who had ways to meet those needs. It's also beautiful because as our text in Acts 4 explains, it was reflective of the heart and the mind that God had given them. A heart that was united to him and to each other. A mind that was tied together, seeing the the, the world with new eyes because God had opened up their eyes. You see, here's what I mean when I say that. The generosity... That marked God's people after God's Spirit had filled them was so radical that it turned upside down their relationship to their personal property. Not that it stopped being their personal property, but that it stopped being only their personal property. And in a very real way, the people of God considered what they owned to be not just personal assets, but kingdom assets. That while in their hands, this was was something that they looked after until God saw fit to use it for his purposes to care for others. To put it another way, try to illustrate this differently, God changed their way of thinking and they were no longer defined by what I like to call a uh, a seagull mentality. You see, for a while, our favorite family movie was Finding Dory. And in that movie, there's a cameo by my favorite characters from the first movie, Finding Nemo, these seagulls fighting for food, and repeating over and over again one word. Mine, 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 mine. You see, unlike these seagulls, the people of God did not believe that there wasn't enough, that they had to protect what was theirs. Now, look at the text. God had made a people for himself that would be one in heart and mind. People that would see every single one of their possessions as an opportunity to love and to serve others. Not as something to protect from others, but something to use for the sake of others. They did not claim any possession as their own. Instead, they rightly viewed themselves as stewards. Right? They, they shared everything they had because it was never theirs in the first place. They were stewarding it, taking care of it, until God wanted it to care for someone else. When Jesus saved them, he didn't just change their destination in eternity. He changed their relationships in the present. He changed everything about them, including the way their hearts had gripped tight to what they owned. And it was beautiful. Right? The, this generosity was supposed to be baked into God's people from the very beginning. But, like any true story, something went wrong. Like like any biblical story, you can probably guess who the villain is. That it's it's sin. There is a, there is a dark side to generosity. You see, if sin cannot have our hearts through um, glaring or obvious greed, it will try to take our hearts through a more subtle and strategic greed—a greed that tries to disguise itself as generosity, but but who Jesus reveals as the parasite that it is. Because let's be honest, familia. Praise God that Jesus saves us, but. Praise God that he keeps working on us. Because until we get to be with him in eternity, until our hearts are with him in eternity, he's made everything right, our hearts still need to be protected and reshaped to beat like his. Sin still lurks. And idols still wrestle, they try to wrestle our hearts back, which is why I want to jump to the story at the end of our text for this next point, a story that illustrates how greed can sneak into generosity even among God's people. Look at the text starting in verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. If you read the the text in Acts 2 and and, and all of Acts 4, this is what they were doing as God's people, right? They They were taking what they owned and converting it to cash and then bringing that money to the church to be used for the good of others. Not all the time, not with all of their property. But as needs arose in the family, the family took care of those needs. You see, sometimes people look at these texts in Acts 2 and 4, and they accuse the early church of some kind of a first draft of communism or socialism. What these students of the Bible miss, though, is that the early church was not required to sell its property. The early church was not putting everything into a pot and then distributing it equally among the inhabitants. The early church did not have people sign over all of their earthly possessions. No, what God did by his spirit was more radical than we could ever imagine, but it was unlike the revolutions that are filled with manifestos and guerrilla warfare. Instead, it was a radical change of heart. Something more radical than than communism or socialism or capitalism or any economy or government could ever achieve. Because, you see, the early church was... With new hearts and as new creations in Christ, shifting from a mindset of ownership to a lifestyle of stewardship. Which does not reject owning property or making money, but does reject the master-slave relationship that, that money and resources tries to cultivate into our hearts. In other words, like Barnabas, the people of God volunteered their resources for the sake of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And the rest of Acts will show that it wasn't even just their family in Christ. It was even their neighbors as well. The people of God made this connection between what God gave them and what God was inviting them into. Right? God gave them money and land and resources, and he was inviting them into his restoring work together. And everybody was watching this family of God live in a radically different way. And they were wondering, how, did, what they, how was what they have so different but someone else was watching too someone else was waiting for his opportunity to disrupt this new family the enemy of god's people satan and he chose to do it by swaying the heart of a husband and a wife verse one of chapter five a man named ananias together with his wife sapphira also sold a piece of property with his wife's full knowledge he kept back part of the money for himself but brought the rest and put it at the apostle's feet the contrast in this story, and I think it's Luke's intention, it almost gives you whiplash. Right? Barnabas sells the field and brings the money to the church to, to care for others, and then we get another story that sounds pretty similar, at least it starts off that way. Ananias and Sapphira, they see this, they turn around, they sell their property, but something different happens in the middle there. Right? Instead of being another example of God's grace and bringing the money to the church to use to care for others, the couple conspires together to keep some of the money. And after that conspiracy, brings it to the church to care for others. So what's the big deal, you might ask? Well, Luke wants to draw our attention to that that, that funny middle part, the, the part that stands out. You see, something went wrong in the transaction, and it wasn't just something that was reflected on the spreadsheet. It was something that went wrong at the level of the heart. The story goes on, and Peter confronts Ananias, and Peter's accusations actually pull back the curtain on what's really going on. Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And, and even after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. You see, the problem was not that they didn't give all of their money. The problem is that they pretended to give all of their money and they lied not just to the church, but to God himself, they wanted the same kind of recognition for generosity that Barnabas got without having to experience the same sacrifice of generosity, at least not to the same extent. Right? Peter explains, the land and the money they got from the sale was theirs to use. They didn't have to lie about it. But by the influence of Satan and entangled in the greed and pride of their hearts, this couple lied. Greed quietly made its way into their generosity and infected their hearts to the point where they distorted a good thing into a sin thing, and God judged them for it. Both he and his wife were judged for what they had done, and the story has a number of implications for our lives, and I won't get to all of them, but this morning, I do want to point out one of them, and it's that dark side of generosity, because you see, generosity is beautiful especially among God's people, but even among God's people, sin tries to take generosity and twist it into into grandstanding, to twist it into trying to gain recognition and status. There's a dark side to generosity, not because generosity is bad, but because the tentacles of greed try to creep back into our hearts, even when we try to be generous. Generous. That's really what's going on with Ananias and Sapphira here. They want the status that money or material things can give them, whether it's inside or outside the church. But they don't want the sacrifice that generosity calls them to. In an even scarier way, I don't think they they even realize that that, that greed like this always asks for something in return. Sure, you can have this or that toy. Or or sure, I'll make sure that you won't have to worry about your finances. I'll take care of you. But I need you to know this is a two-way street. And the only thing I want in return is your heart. Give me your love and your affections, and I will fulfill every one of your cravings. But like a mirage in the desert, money and toys will never satisfy our thirsty hearts. And God sees the the mirage for what it is, which is why he warns us in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10 like this. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. See, God explains, the problem is not money here. The problem is the love of money. Right? Just like Ecclesiastes 5 told us. It is, it is those who, who want to get rich that stumble into a trap set by sin. Or as uh, one hip-hop prophet said, mo' money, mo' problems. The text warns us. When it says that the desire for riches will lead us into many foolish and harmful desires that, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It is the love of the the insatiable desire for, the never-ending pursuit of money that leads people away from the faith and into griefs that pierce the heart that Jesus died to resurrect. It's not just money. It's the the love of money, the the greed that animates our thirst for more, more money, more toys, more things, more stuff for me, myself, and I, more for me and mine, and, and less for you and yours. The heart behind all of this is a heart that desperately needs the gospel. Because the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is a bright, shining billboard that testifies to a king and a kingdom that always has more than enough and where no one is lacking. Not because we are all millionaires, but because we are all satisfied in Him and everything we need is given to us in Christ and we take care of each other like family because of what the gospel has done. There's a dark side to generosity, but that's because there's a dark side to us, to our hearts. And yet Jesus is the light of the world. And his gospel light not only shines on the dark places of our hearts, but changes them with the beauty of his generosity because his gospel is a gospel of generosity. Look back at our text in Acts 4, starting at verse 33. Right, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all, notice this connection, that there was no needy persons among them. Did you see? Did you catch that? The, the text makes a direct connection between the gospel and the generosity of God's people here. Do you see that? The resurrection of Jesus is preached, and God's grace is at work, and it is so powerful that it takes care of every need that's among them. Not just in an I only need Jesus kind of way, but in an actual physical, you're not going hungry kind of way. There were no needy persons among them. Why? How does the gospel that says Jesus died for me translate into a community filled with the beauty of generosity? Well, let me take you to another passage that shows us that connection even more clearly. Second Corinthians 8, 9. Before I read that passage, though, I want to give you the context. You see, this verse that I'm about to read to you is right in the middle of Paul asking the Corinthian church to give to the church in Jerusalem that was suffering. There was a, a famine, there was a lot of things going on, and, and he's, he's making an ask at all the churches that he's, he's helped start. And as he asks, one of the things he does is he reminds them of the gospel. Because you see, Paul wants to make it clear that their motivation for giving is not because they, they have to or because they're just doing something really nice. It's because of the gospel. Look at what he writes, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, that's the connection word, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Christians are people who know the grace of the one who became poor, that we might become rich. Rich. It is the grace that he has given us, the, the grace that, that, that has saved us, the grace that gave us new life that is the same grace that animates and gives life to generous hearts. It is, it is because he was generous with us in his gospel that we are to be generous with others. Not as something we have to do in order to be saved or to earn our way into heaven, but as something we do because we have new hearts. Something that is the overflow of a life changed by the gospel. The solution to the dark side of generosity, the the way to display the beauty of generosity is not just be more generous. The solution is the gospel. Believe the gospel. Truly grasp what has been done for us in Christ. Understand what he did and how he did it. It is not do more. It is believe in him because once we do that, we cannot help but be generous. If you read the text, the early church did not have a sermon series on generosity before it started being generous with each other. It was a a supernatural outworking of the Spirit in their lives. This is what Christians do. This is is who Christians are because this is who our God is. He gave everything for us. The Bible says that Jesus humbled himself, that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. The Son of God became human for us. He gave up the riches of heaven to come down to earth and live the life that we could not live. He lived a life without sin, perfectly obedient to God in every way. And as the God-man who was 100% human and 100% God, he lived the life we should have lived. And Jesus himself told his disciples that he did not come to be served, but to serve. And his ultimate act of service was dying a death he didn't deserve so that we could have the life we didn't deserve. He died in our place, taking the punishment for our sin so that we could live in his place, receiving the joy and the rewards and the riches of salvation. And he came back to life three days later to show us the way to that joy through faith in him. This is the, uh, the, the rags-to-riches story of every single Christian. A story that is marked not by our own bootstraps because, like we talked about last week, we were dead in our sins, right? Dead people don't lift themselves out of their dead situation. We needed a Savior, and that is exactly who we got. The God who gave everything in order to save us. Once we grasp this, once we we realize that all that we have is is a gift that he has given us, not just salvation, but all of our money and resources and time and skills, all of it is a gift from him, it changes our entire lives. You see, the gospel reminds us that everything is a gift. And it's because of that that we are called not to act like owners, but like stewards. Not like bosses, but like managers, right? It's because this is what we are. We, we are money managers for God. We, we are time managers, skill managers, resource managers for God. The Bible opens our eyes to the ultimate gift of salvation that God gives us, but then it pans out, and it shows us that really everything that we have is a gift from Him, which is why we need to be disciplined in our generosity. Because the dark side of generosity, the the allure of money, the the temptation of greed tries to distort our vision and and get us to believe like our ancestors believed in the garden, did God really say? Did God really say that he would take care of you? Did God really say that that there was more than enough in his kingdom? Did did God really say that you don't have to worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear? Did God really say? Yes, he did. And more than that, he really showed that he loves us enough to do what's best for us. He loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. We are generous people because he is a generous God. Because the gospel that saves us and shapes us is a gospel of generosity. And so the question now is, how does the gospel shape us as a generous people? It does that by calling us to generosity in every area of our lives. Look back at our text, Acts 4.33. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For, from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. A crucial part of being generous is being in relationship. The early church, by God's Spirit, took care of needy people as their needs arose. They they used their resources, they they viewed these resources as, as opportunities to care for other people. And so when one of those opportunities would present themselves, they would take their resources and convert them into loving others. But this wouldn't have been possible if people were not making their needs known. The discipline of generosity can be exercised in a church in a lot of different ways. But one of the things that makes it most difficult to exercise in a church is when that church pretends that it doesn't have any needs. When we try to hide our pain and our struggles and try to put on a mask and pretend like everything is okay. God has told us he will provide for us. In multiple places, Jesus explains that that the God who clothes the lilies of the field and feeds the birds of the air will provide everything we need. My question for all of us here is, how do you think that God does that? Allow me to suggest, maybe just maybe, that God provides for His people through His people. That the check that showed up in the mail, the meal that was brought to your door, the driveway that, that was shoveled, the encouraging text or card or call that came through, all of those are ways that God by His Spirit is caring for each of us. And they are all ways that God by His, by His Spirit is caring. For each of us through others. And there are always a god by his Spirit is caring for others through us. The discipline of gener- generosity cannot be stopped among God's people, but it will certainly be slowed down if God's people pretend they don't need any help. And I've been building up to something, asking a very pastoral question up here: that we as a family might be real with each other and actually express our needs. actually express where we're hurting. Actually express where things are difficult, where life is hard. So that there can truly be said there were no needy people among us. Not because needy people are hiding, but because we are caring and we are open to one another. Before we end, I want to give you three different ways that we can do that, but they are not the end-all, be-all of, of, of a life of generosity. They are, they are opportunities that I'm hoping will be a a, a catalyst, springboards, things we can jump from and get creative with about how to be generous in our lives. Because if I'm calling people to be vulnerable and share their needs, I want to also equip us to love and care for each other in those needs, amen? So here are three ways that I'll throw your way before we end this morning. And they are hospitality, serving, and giving. Being generous with your space, your time, and your money. A life of generosity reflects the one who gave us everything that we have because everything is a gift that he has given. We are to steward all of it. And like I said, these are just starting points, but I want to get our minds and hearts working creatively. How we can be generous with the fa- family that God has placed us in, but then also with the neighborhoods he's placed us in. So let me go to the first one. We'll go through these pretty quick. The first way that a generous life plays out, I think, is, is, is in hospitality. I think the scriptures point to this in multiple places, uh, about being generous with our, our, our space, with our time. Hebrews 13, one through 2 commands us to keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. Do not forget. Do not neglect. And, and this isn't just a Middle Eastern cultural thing. This is a gospel culture thing. In fact, thinking back to a few weeks ago when we talked about leadership, I didn't mention it then, but I'll mention it now. In in the list of, of necessary character qualities that the Bible gives for elders that are leading and loving and shepherding his church, hospitality makes the list. The people that the Lord wants to model for us what it means to lead a godly life are required by God to be hospitable. Think about that for a minute. God considers hospitality to be so crucial to the Christian life and the life of the church that he makes it a basic requirement of leading his people. What is hospitality? It is, it is generosity at your table. It is generosity with your space, your, your personal bubble, your, your life. It is a tangible way to express a generous heart because it's a deeply personal thing to have someone in your house and at your table. right? Seeing your kids throw food on the ground seeing your messy kitchen, And, and if you have roommates, your roommate's arguing and fighting, using your bathroom, eating your food, sitting on your couch. Hospitality is a picture of the gospel because it is what Jesus died for. Let me explain what I mean when I say that. John 1 says that Jesus came to his own and yet his own did not receive him. They did not show him hospitality because sin had darkened their hearts against him. And and yet he lived among us. He lived and then he died without a home in order to make a home for us, to make us into family. It's why in just a few moments we're going to step into a time of communion together because communion is a reminder of the hospitality of Christ who welcomes us to his table. We follow in his footsteps when we do the same with people welcoming them into our homes. Rosaria Butterfield writes in her book, The Gospel Comes with the House Key. She says, as Christians are not fearful hoarders, we are fearless givers. We give fearlessly because he gave fearlessly. We do not let the fear of of not having enough or, or, or what broken people might do in our house keep us from expressing the generosity of God in the gospel through hospitality. And, and, and just to be clear, when I say hospitality, I am not talking about the HGTV hospitality either, right? That like wide open floor plan where you get to entertain. I'm talking about whatever the Lord has given us, whether it's a big house or a tiny apartment or, or even a dorm room. How are we expressing the welcome and hospitality of Christ? Not just to people we like, not just to people that are like us, but to strangers, people that are unlike us, or even, dare I say, enemies, People who don't like us, or, or maybe that we don't like. That's what Jesus did in the gospel, if you remember when we were enemies of God. Rosaria Butterfield, I, I, I was trying really hard not to quote her the rest of this section, but she encourages hospitality like this. Here's my sneaky book recommendation The gospel comes with the house key. Incredible. She says this Let God use your home, apartment, dorm room front yard, community gymnasium, or garden for the purpose of making strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. Because that is the point. Building the church and living like a family, the family of God. Be generous with the space the Lord has given you, whatever it is, for his glory and the good of others. But that's only my first application piece. There's a second one that I want to call you to. We as Christians are called to serve, to be generous with our time and our skills and our resources. 1 Peter four ten through 11 says it like this. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Generosity with our time and our gifts and our skills is not just about, about helping others. First Peter tells us it is a way to steward the various forms of God's grace that have been given to us. Do you see what Peter is saying here? When you and I serve, we act as channels of God's grace to people. We, we serve as, as answers to someone's prayers. We we might even be the first contact that someone has with grace. Be generous with your time and with every gift the Lord has given you, not just to to feel good, not just to to help, but to be a path of God's grace to others. Now, even when I talk about this, some people uh, hesitate to serve because they haven't figured out their gifting yet, or, or, or they're waiting until something at church aligns with what they perceive their gifting to be. And while I can understand the heart that's behind that, I want to encourage you to consider something alongside that that, that discernment process. Not every act of service is a matter of matching up gifting to need. This is family. And like family, sometimes we meet a need even if we aren't the best person to meet that need because it has to get done and we love our family. Sometime last year, I had to, I can't even remember it because I blocked it out of my head, it was so painful. I had to figure out plumbing in my house. Now, if you know me, you know that I am not gifted in plumbing. But one of my beautiful children, who will remain nameless, decided to send something down the toilet as we flushed. And said object was stuck at the bottom of said toilet, and the toilet would no longer flush. Meet the least handy handyman you could find. We didn't have money to buy a new toilet, or to get a plumber to figure things out. And so with a little help from a friend, I I removed the toilet, removed the foreign object, and reinstalled our toilet. Problem solved. Now, why in the world did I do that? Let me tell you right now, it's not because I was gifted at plumbing. I did it because I had to. This was family. The problem needed fixing. Now, I am not going to argue with you. A plumber would have done a way better job than I did. And if we could have afforded one, I would not have risked my life trying to do my own plumbing. But here's my point. Serving others may not always match our gifting, but it is always our calling. Should we try to figure out how the Lord has gifted us and where we best fit in? Of course. But a Christian who is not serving is a contradiction. That's why Peter says, use whatever gift you have received to serve others. Use whatever you got to serve. And then Peter takes it even further in this text, and he calls our serving worship. Serve with the strength that God provides so that God would be praised. Our serving, our generosity with our time, is an act of stewardship, an act of grace, and an act of worship. That's what this text is saying. Stewardship, because God alone is the one who numbers our days and has given us time. Not to do what we want with, but to manage our time well. Just like our resources. Grace, because we are not just stewarding time and skills. We are also actually stewarding grace that God has given us in order to give to others and worship, because all of it is meant to bring praise to the king of kings, the king who came as a servant. That's who we serve. There's one pastor who describes this like this. He says, we are a kingdom of servants ruled by a servant king. This is our identity. We don't don't just serve because it's a good idea or because we like to serve. We serve because that is who we are. We follow a servant who teaches us to serve by serving us first. Generosity with our time looks a lot of different ways. So I'm not trying to say that this is the only way of doing it. But generosity with time means serving here in your church family on a Sunday morning, teaching the kids about Jesus, being back in the booth, making sure that, that sound and lights work, As an usher, as a as a greeter, helping someone feel the welcome of Christ, setting up and tearing down what our family needs, even though it doesn't feel glamorous. It means noticing when a sibling is in need and taking time to shovel a driveway or put up a fence or or order groceries. It it means serving your neighbor or mowing their lawn when they can't. It, It means helping them watch their kids when they have to get to an appointment. Because in all of these ways and so much more that I didn't even have a chance to, to list out, we communicate the grace of God through our actions. Generous with our space and hospitality and generous with our time and serving. And now here's my third one, generous with our money. Let me end where the conversation on generosity usually starts. And there are two passages I want to bring us to here at the end. The first is 1 John 3:16 through 17. This is what the text says. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Generosity with our money, and by extension with the stuff that money buys, is not just charitable giving, it is the gospel in action. John explains that that we know love because of what Jesus did when he laid down his life for us. And as those who truly know love, then we should also be truly loving others, which means we are laying down our lives for them. Not just sacrificing in death, but sacrificing in life as well. For those who are in need, not to earn God's love, but because we already have God's love. Because we know his love. And if we are not moved by the needs of others like God was moved by our desperate need of him, then we have not fully understood or believed the gospel. That's how direct John is being in this text. Now, the reason I'm doing two texts in this section is because I need to balance some of that directness, and the scriptures give us all of, all of the truth of the Lord, and so I'm going to give this next passage to balance out that direct question, 2 Corinthians 9, because this isn't just about doing better, right? This is about believing and living out the gospel. And 2 Corinthians 9, 6-8 explains it like this. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Now, I'm not ignorant of this text. Some have used this to preach a prosperity gospel. Sow a seed and then you'll get back more than you ever dreamed or or something more demonic than that. I don't have time to dive in too deep into all of that, but I want to show you something in this text that, that I think applies directly to generosity. And it might not be what you think it is. You see, the text tells us to give what you have decided, not reluctantly or under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. Why does God say it like that? Because God is not worried about not having enough money or resources or people serving. God is not trying to just fill open spots on his roster or add more zeros to the bank account. God is all about changing people from the inside out, which is why the text says that God is able, I don't know if you caught that in the last verse, to bless us abundantly, more than enough. That's what that word means, over the top. Why? He connects it so that we would be over the top in good works. In all things, at all times, with all of our needs met, we can give sacrificially to bless others. Did you catch that? God blesses us in order to bless others. Not sow a seed and then God will give you a bunch of stuff. But all that the Lord has blessed you with is meant to bless others. To meet all of our needs so that out of that provision we reflect his generosity. We we give not because we have to, but because we are reflecting on the outside what God has done on the inside that he has changed our hearts and that money and the greed that tries to keep everything for ourselves no longer tempts us with the lie that there isn't enough. I'll say it like this. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your service. He doesn't need your house. He wants your heart. Be hospitable, serve others, and give sacrificially, but not because God is in some kind of desperate need. Do it because we used to be in desperate need and he saved us. He changed us. Our hearts are new and and we no longer have to worry about having enough. We already have everything we need in Christ. He promises to provide for us. Trust him. Generosity is trusting God to be who he says he is, that he will do what he says he will do. Greed and and the temptation for that is not just a temptation, a, a, a material temptation. It's a temptation not to trust the Lord, to think you have to make it work because he might, he might drop the ball, but I don't know if you've noticed, God doesn't drop the ball ever. Or as I said in the beginning, generosity in the life of the church is the overflow of hearts that have been changed by the gospel, that truly trust him, that have been transformed by the good news of Jesus, that are, that are made new, new creations who, who no longer have a, a scarcity mentality, right? Don't have a... a Buy up all the toilet paper at the beginning of a pandemic, kind of way of thinking. Not looking at anybody. We trust the God who made everything to provide everything that we need. To know what we need and to provide it in his wisdom and in his timing through his people because we are his people. We are familia. And the discipline of generosity not only fights back against the temptation of greed, but drives the gospel deeper into our hearts, inviting others into that same generous gospel. And so, what better way to remember the generosity of God in the gospel than by re-entering the rhythm of communion? This is where we're ending today because of what generosity means. This is one of the practices the Lord has given us to remind us of his generous gospel, of seeing the generosity of God at the table together. Our generous God invites us once again to eat and to drink at this table together. Now, when you came in, you should have gotten one of these. If you didn't, the cups are in the back. You can grab one. And these these cups are tricky to open. I hear the crinkling, so we're going to open them together, get all the crinkling out of the way, and then I'll lead us in taking communion, all right? Ready? All right, I'll wait. As we prepare to take communion together, I want to invite us back to the table that Christ has set for us. By faith, I want to invite us to sit and to know that we are part of the familia that Jesus has made, that Jesus has bought by his blood, I gotta say, it is a treat for me to be able to do this two weeks in a row because the reality is the frequency of practicing communion together does not remove the bittersweet taste of these elements that they leave in our mouths, right? Sweet because our sins have been forgiven and we are invited into this family, but, but bitter because of what Jesus had to do to make that possible and because we are still waiting until he returns and makes everything right again. And so as we wait, we eat and we drink with, with sanctified disappointment, waiting for the day when we will eat and drink with the king at his royal table. And so with that longing in mind, then I want to remind us that, that this is a table for sinners. Sinners who have been saved by the blood of Jesus have been forgiven because of what jesus did on the cross right this is a meal for all who have confessed their sins before christ and have received his forgiveness and so if you have not yet done that i want to invite you to do that today if you have not yet believed i want to plead with you to not ignore the gift that jesus holds out to you now the free gift of his grace that can be received only by faith you don't have to do anything It is only by believing that Jesus is who he says he is and did what he said he would do and that his death counts for you that your sins can be forgiven in Christ. Believe and confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior. And then I want to invite you to take and eat with us, to raise the cup and drink with us because this is a meal for sinners saved by grace. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven 27 through 29, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, they eat and they drink judgment on themselves. So this morning, I want to make space for us to examine ourselves before we eat and drink. So silently in your seats, I want to invite you to confess your sins to Jesus and to receive the forgiveness that he freely gives you, that he freely gives us, that He purchased on the cross for us. Confess, repent, and trust his forgiveness. Let's take a moment now in silence. Gracious God, we confess before you, not out of fear, but out of freedom. We know that we have sinned, but we trust that you have purchased our forgiveness. That you purchased it at great personal cost, that you gave your very life for us. And so we confess this morning, trusting in the words of Hebrews 10 that tell us to draw near in full confidence because of the sacrifice of Christ. And so as we eat this bread, Lord, would you strengthen our faith would you ground us in the gospel? Would you bind us closer together as the family that you have made? It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Well, let's hold up the bread together. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three 24, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat and remember together. Jesus, that same passage in Hebrews 10 tells us that what gives us confidence to enter the holy place is your blood. Your blood spilled for us, your blood that washes us whiter than snow. This morning as we drink this cup, may the sweetness of this juice remind us of the sweetness of your forgiveness. And would you shape us with the incredible generosity you have shown us in the gospel. pray all these things in your name. Amen. Let's raise the cup together. The scriptures continue in 11, verse 25. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink and remember together. Paul ends in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26, saying this. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Familia, we, we not only remember at this table, we, we preach the gospel over and over as we await his return. May this meal point us to the greater meal we will have in heaven together. Until we get there, let's pray that we will proclaim the gospel with our whole lives together as a family. Would you pray with me? Lord, like we're about to sing, we love because you loved. We give because you gave. You have always been the same, but you have changed us by your grace. This morning, as we sing in response to this table, we sing with joy and with gratitude. We sing with hearts that have been repaired by your gospel. We, we sing out of the freedom we have in you. There is so much you have done for us, and we are left in grateful awe at your mighty deeds in the gospel. So, Lord, as we end our time gathered here this morning, I pray that you would continue to shape us and, and reshape us and form us into a, a family that reflects your gospel, a family that is generous with everything you have given us that it would get into our minds and our hearts that that you have made us stewards and that that we would live that way, not just with our excess, but with everything we have. We confess all the ways in which we have been, been stingy or greedy with all that you have given us, treating your gifts as something that we have earned on our own. We confess and we repent and we pray that your generosity would characterize our whole lives, would characterize this community And so we trust you to continue to shape us in your gospel ways. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.